Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can a life in filmmaking lead you to enlightenment? What is a Sangoma? How do paranormal experiences affect your view of reality? Hello and welcome to the 884th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON, AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app, from TalkStream Live, and on TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those cryptic questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today, we bring you a new and different guest, and if you'd like to join us on the air, give us a call at 401-766-1240 from anywhere, or you can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com, or you can reach out to us via various social media platforms. For the second week in a row, we have a globe-trotting South African-born filmmaker with us. And what are the chances of that? Coming to us via Skype is Lionel Friedberg, Emmy Award winner and New York Times best-selling author. The list of his awards, honors, and accomplishments will take up the entire show. Suffice it to say that his film credits include numerous documentaries with PBS, National Geographic, and many cable channels, and many dramatic TV episodes. He now lives in Los Angeles and maintains his longtime interest in consciousness studies and the paranormal. His website, LionelFriedberg.com. So, Lionel Friedberg, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, guys. Very nice to be with you. Hi there. Well, it's great to have you with us. So, I guess we'll kind of uh, jump right into the meat and potatoes, so to speak. So, what is a Sangoma, and how did your work lead you to meeting one? Well, a sangoma is is just another word for a shaman, and uh, it is a term that is used primarily in the southern regions of Africa, uh, primarily South Africa, but it's also used in areas like Zimbabwe, uh, Botswana, uh, any of those areas in the southern part of the continent. Um, and a, a, a sangoma wears many hats and has many roles in society. Um, in the olden days, during the, the, the days of apartheid, when um, racism was alive and well in all its ugliness in, in South Africa, Sangomas were confined to the rural areas where they did their, uh, their, their, their practices, healing people, uh, dispensing medication, kinds of things of that nature. But today, uh, you will find them in the... Um, you can find them in the uh, in the urban areas as well, and they're in the cities. And uh, their work, uh, although it, it certainly is outside of the of the Western allopathic system, is now recognised in South Africa as an official official healing system by the Department of Health. Um, in the old days, of course, that wasn't the case at all. Uh, in fact, um, the disparaging term that whites used to use for these guys were, were uh, you know, witch doctors, you know. You remember the, all those those movies, uh, those cheap B-movies that you used to see in matinees on a Saturday afternoon, you <laughs> yeah, know, white right. witch doctor, you know. You know. Uh, so uh, they, are, they certainly aren't witch doctors. However, there is an element of their work that certainly has to do with um, evil spirits, um, and to do with bad energies that come from the spiritual realm. Uh, what a Sangoma does is uh, diagnose illnesses. He can find, he or she can find missing people or property, uh, can foretell the future, 
can heal illnesses of all kinds. And so, I mean, they, it's, it's, it's a very diverse form of, of healing. It's, uh, it's a complete, completely outside of, 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 of the box as we know it. And, um, they are absolutely fascinating people and it takes a long, long time to learn how to do this stuff. Um, if you are, decide to become a Sangoma, the decision is not normally yours. You are usually chosen by your ancestors. Uh, that is the belief. And the ancestors will call you to this world. And then you need to find a teacher. And that usually takes years and years and years of sitting at the feet of a master who knows what they're doing, teaches you how to go out into the wild blue yonder and pick herbs and, uh, and barks and berries and bulbs and whatever else in order to uh, create medication. But also, uh, how to communicate with the ancestors. And the way they do that, there is a, 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 a medium by which they can communicate directly with the ancestors, and that is by throwing the bones. And I, one has often heard the term throwing the bones. What do the bones tell? Well, they do. They use that. They have a little bag of bones, and in this little bag is a selection of bones. These animals, these, these bones, various animals such as uh, hyenas, lions, uh, goats, um, crocodiles. Uh, and the, the reason why these particular animals are chosen is because of their spiritual energy, uh, just the, the general characteristics to do with the animal itself, which is embodied in the bone. And the way the bones fall, once they are thrown onto a little mat, the Sangoma is able to read that pattern. If one bone falls on top of another one, if it faces left or right, north or south, upside down uh, or whatever, the Sangoma translates that as being, the, the, it, it is believed that the way they fall is, is uh, influenced by the ancestors. And so the ancestors speak to the Sangoma through the bones. Everything is done through the ancestors and the medium by which the message is transmitted it's through the bones. It's a fascinating, fascinating field. Hmm. So how did you encounter one of the Sangomas in Africa? Well, you know, when I grew up, I was, I was a little kid. I was maybe five or six years old. And, of course, we all had nannies and servants and whatever else um, during those days. And I'm talking about the late 40s, early 50s. And one day my nanny said to me, I was an only child, and my nanny said to me, I'm going down the road to visit a friend of mine. Do you want to come with me? And I said, yeah, sure. And so, you know, I went down with her to see her, meet her friend. And when we got to her friend's house, and her friend lived in the same kind of conditions as she did in a little room at the back of, of the main White House at the bottom end of the garden with minimal facilities, a tiny little closet-sized room and a little tiny bathroom um, and a cold shower, and that was all they had. Um, and so we went there. And when we arrived, um, there were a couple of people standing outside uh, this person's door, you know, my nanny's friend's door. And I said to her, you know, who are they? And she said, well, they are here to see her because she's also a doctor. It was the first time I ever heard the term that, you know, a servant, someone who washed the dishes and did the laundry, polished the floors and stuff. How can such a person be a doctor? So I said, what do you mean a doctor? She said, well, when we go inside her room, she will show you. And so when those people who were ahead of us, once they came out of her room 20 minutes later carrying a little bag of, I don't know what was inside there, but they went away with something and they looked 
kind of satisfied as to whatever had happened inside the room. And uh, we went inside, and um, then my nanny said to her, tell, tell, tell Lionel, what do you do? And she, woman, she, she pointed around her room to me, and all around her room on little shelves were bottles and containers of weird-looking things that I had no idea what they were. Barks, berries, herbs, bulbs, uh, animal skins, all sorts of weird stuff, strange smells. It was very, very, it was very unearthly. Uh, I was not familiar with any of the stuff at all. And I said, what do you do with this? And she said, well, these are my medicines. I make medicines out of this stuff. And the way I find out what people need for medicine, for help if they're sick, is I use this. And she brought up this little bag and she shook it and she said, there are bones inside here. Small bones, you know, the size of little chicken bones, nothing big. And she threw them on the mat and she said, you see the way they fall on the mat? I can read them. I can interpret the way they fall. And that is how I help my patients. I was intrigued by all of this because, you know, I was just a little kid and uh, I'd, I'd been to, you know, Saturday matinee mov- uh, movies and followed all these serials about, you know, uh, white hunters going through the dark continent of Africa and stuff. This was straight out of that. And I thought, wow, this is absolutely amazing. So that was my first introduction to that world. But in later years... When my profession got underway, I really got to know these people extremely well. And it was an extraordinary experience. So a part of your experience was that <clears throat> when we spoke before we booked it for the show, that uh, this particular shaman or sangoma kind of laid out your path in life and was right. Yeah, let me uh, back uh, track or, or fast forward a little bit. We were talking about my childhood. So we're talking about me, you know, being about five, six, seven years of age. Uh, after I finished my school, my education in South Africa, I, I was born there, I grew up there. My parents decided to leave the country primarily because of the apartheid system, which was pretty ugly, pretty brutal. My father was originally from Eastern Europe. He wanted no part of this world at all. And he said, you know, we got to get out of here. And uh, so he took a job. He he was trained as a watchmaker, by the way, in the old days when we all had mechanical watches, mm. you know. <laughs> and he and he would live in that little micro world of little cogs and wheels and things. And he took a job uh, as a watchmaker in a little jewelry store way up to the north of uh, South Africa in a place called Northern Rhodesia. Now, Northern Rhodesia was a British territory as were many parts of Africa at that time. Remember, Africa was carved up and divided among the the countries of Europe. They were all colonies of Portugal, of France, of Belgium, of Britain, Spain, whatever else, Italy even. And anyway, so Northern Rhodesia was a British colony, and my father took a job in a little, little store in a mining town just to the south of the border of the Belgian Congo. Uh, and when he decided to move up there, I had finished my education, and I said, I'm going with you, because I was crazy about the movies, always. You know, I'd been to the movies every Saturday with my buddies, and my mother had, bless her soul, she took me to see every film that she ever went to see. Um, so I loved the movies, and I wanted to make movies. And when they moved up to Northern Rhodesia, I thought, wow, here's my chance now I can start making my own movies about Tarzan and the African Queen and King <laughs> Solomon's Mines, you know, and all that, mm. all the good stuff, all that adventure stuff. 
because I did have a little camera that was given to me by a cousin of mine, an old uh, 8mm camera. This was the days of film, of course, no video those days. And so I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity. I mean, how naive can you be? I'm straight out of school, and I'm expecting to start a career in the film industry <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Well, <laughs> ben, ben was like that. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, to cut a very long story short, uh, I went up there, and um, when I arrived, I looked around, and I thought, what on earth am I doing in this place? This is, this is wild Africa. From horizon to horizon was just jungle. And in between were these little copper mining towns. What am I going to do here? And, you know, straight out of manna, like manna from heaven one morning in the local rag and the local newspaper that served these towns, there was a little tiny ad uh, for staff for a new television station that was opening up. Uh, this was the first television station in Central Africa. Uh, it was owned by a British company. Uh, with, I believe, some money from South Africa as well, but it was basically British-owned. And um, when I saw this, I thought, oh, my God, this is for me. i got to get into this place. So I went along. I had an interview. Uh, the station hadn't even opened yet, and they gave me a job. And um, within six months, I was behind one of the studio cameras as a studio cameraman, working on educational broadcasts in the morning, for local schools in the in the boondocks in the areas around these towns because they weren't enough teachers to go around in the afternoon it was cultural programming for 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 adults you know we had trucks arriving with with groups of tribal people with their drums and their uniforms and their costumes it was amazing it was wonderful stuff and at night we had you know leave it to beaver and bonanza <laughs> and stuff like that for <laughs> for the white audiences so we lived in this in this multi-dimensional world, and this is how I started my career. Anyway, so I did this for about three years, and it was absolutely amazing. It was wonderful until one day we all got pink slips, and uh, we were told that thank you very much, you've done a great job, but um, you have to leave the station because your job is going to be taken over by a local person, by a Zambian, by a black person. Well, we understood that. Because independence was coming, Northern Rhodesia was transitioning to become the Republic of Zambia under a black government, and so all us whiteies, we lost our jobs at the station. Um, and I went to my, uh, we had a, a wonderful guy working for us at home, and I, I, the next morning I said to him, David, a terrible thing has happened. Um, I've been fired because uh, my job's been given to, well, to one of you guys, you know. Um, I have to leave. And I don't know what to do. And he said, oh, uh, he sort of thought about it for a moment. He wasn't much older than me. He was in his like, you know, early 20s, mid 20s. And he said, let me think about this. And after a couple of days, he came back and he said, I know someone who may be able to help you. Uh, and I said, like who? And he said, we will go on Thursday or whatever the day was and you will see. I had no idea what I was in for. No, no idea at all. But I trusted the guy implicitly. Uh, he and I were very, very good friends, and whatever he said, you know, I believe that maybe there was something in what he was telling me. And so off we went in my little second-hand car into the boondocks on a dirt road to a little village on the outskirts of town. And right on the edge of the settlement was a single house, and in there lived this old, old, wrinkled-up old woman. She was a member of the Bemba uh, ethnic group. She spoke no English at all. Thank goodness David did. And uh, we went into her house. 
and she said, please sit down. And I was expecting her to lay out my, my plan of action, you know, what should I do with my life? Anyway, um, we sat down on her floor, and the minute I went into, into her room, this, this, she had two rooms in this house, um, I smelled the same smells that I remembered as a child in South Africa in that Sangoma's room. And I saw the same sort of things on the shelves in, 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 on, on the walls in her room, and I knew, ah, she is also one of these weird, you know, doctor-type people. And so I don't know what she's going to tell me, but you better you better listen because, you know, maybe she can tell you something of interest. And she started babbling, telling me things that were absolutely unbelievable. I didn't understand any of it because none of it made any sense. And I'll give you examples. She said, for example, and she's speaking Bemba. David's translating for me. She said, uh, there are very big, bright lights in his life. Now, she didn't know what I did for a living, that I worked at a television station. There are very big, bright lights in his life, and one day he will cross the big water. Now, remember, Zambia is in the middle of Africa. There's no ocean there. It's landlocked. She, this poor woman had probably never even seen a river or an ocean in her life, had probably n never been more than 10 miles away from where she was born. And here she's telling me that I will cross the big water, whatever that meant, and I will go to a place in that direction. And she points to the north. And she said he will go there and he will work with very famous people with big lights. And he will do his work in a place far, far away from here. I didn't know what she was talking about. Um, and then she also went on to say all sorts of other things. Like, for example, one day in his work, he will go to a world where there is no color. It's a, it's a world where there is only white. No other colors at all. Again, I had no clue what she was inferring. Uh, she said all sorts of things. She said, one day he will be in the bush and there will be a great beast and it, it will, he will come very close to dying because of this great beast. And that was, that sounded scary to me, but I had no idea what she meant, you know. But I'm writing all this down and David's translating as fast as he can for me. And, and she goes on and on and on and on about these predictions purely by staring at the bones that are lying on the floor, which, you know, I was, I was the one who picked up the bone, the, the bag, threw the bag upside down and made the bones spill out. So it's my ancestors speaking to her ancestors, telling her about my future. I don't think she even knew what she was seeing in the bones, but she was just telling me what visions were coming to her. And, you know, one of the most amazing things she said was uh, the, the, the day will come that in his work he will meet the man who knew very, very well the most evil man who ever lived. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, my God, what is he talking about? It sounded real scary to me. Um, but I filed all the stuff away, you know, and she said things like he will go on the big water also for his work. And the water will try to take his life. You know, she kept th throwing these things out. None of them meant anything to me. Until they came to pass. Until they happened. And it's only when they happened, sometimes decades later, that I realized that what she was talking about, you know, what, what they really meant. Because that's when, when as, these, as these incidents uh, came to pass in my life. And the first one, for example, was crossing the big water to the north, well, 
And I guess, I, I guess that was the first time that I realized, you know, that this woman uh, was telling the truth because what I decided to do after I had this meeting, you know, it was very, not very particularly satisfying to me because she didn't tell me exactly what I had to do. So I had no option. I had to leave uh, Zambia and go back to South Africa um, um, which had a pretty thriving film industry at the time and I joined the film industry and I was there for a few years but I eventually emigrated I decided to leave the country and I emigrated to Canada and one evening I those days you didn't fly I'm talking about the year then was 1965 or 66 I think it was uh, you didn't fly you went by sea you know, particularly if you have, if you had more than one bag of luggage, you'd go by, by ocean, you'd go by ocean liner. And so I traveled from Cape Town to Southampton, and, uh, it was a 13 day voyage. And halfway along the voyage, one evening I went up on deck and I, I was on my own, and I used to watch the stars change at night. The, every night the sky changed. And one evening, so halfway through the voyage, I suddenly realized, wow, you know, I can really feel myself moving from one hemisphere of the planet to another because the sky really is changing. Every night you could see these subtle changes. And then it suddenly hit me. This is what this woman was talking about. He will cross the big water and go to the north. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm traveling on the Atlantic Ocean from Cape Town to Southampton and I'm going in a northerly direction to Southampton. That's what I'm doing. That's what she foresaw. And, you know, everything after that, that that she predicted came true. But that was the first one that I suddenly realized. This lady, whatever she was seeing, was spot on with her visions, you know. Wow. And, well, we're going to... Um well, let me take our break a little early, but we have a question from a listener. We'll continue our globe trotting, and we come back, uh, moving from South Africa to Canada, uh, with a question from South America. So we will uh, be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful but chilly Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, Lionel Friedberg. Stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? We're local and live at 99.5 FM, ON, AM, and FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Maynino. Let's get right back to our great guest, Lionel Friedberg, well-known filmmaker and adventurer. And we're going to be talking uh, to, of course, our we have a question, I should say, from our our um, very regular uh, questioner and listener in in uh, Bogota, Colombia, and that's Peter. So yes. And I, I, it's to the point now where I don't even I, <laughs> I see the text. I'm like, oh, it's Peter. We put him <laughs> right in the script. Yeah, I know. Hey, every every time. Uh, so Peter writes, uh, please ask Lionel about his stunning 1966 Saskatchewan, Canada UFO event. Um, the question is, what might have attracted the UFO to that area, and was this a totally isolated sighting, or one of uh, one of the others in your life? I should say. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I was always very interested in, in, uh, in UFOs, in, in the possibility of extraterrestrial visits to the planet. Always. Um, I, I, I never doubted that for one moment ever since I read Emanuel Belikovsky's uh, book, uh, in the early fifties. Flying saucers have landed. Um, and anyway, uh, so I was totally open to all of this. And, you know, I had discussed it, by the way, with a number of, 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 of Sangomas over the years. Uh, and many of them have to- had, had mentioned to me, actually, that, uh, that there were beings that came from other worlds to this planet. Uh, so I was totally open to all of this. So now we're talking about 1966, and I'm living in Canada, and I'm working for the National Film Board of Canada, which is really one of the most pre- prestigious um, documentary uh, units, uh, film companies um, in the world. Mm. And um, what we were working on was a documentary about the history of housing in Canada. And we were working on the province of Saskatchewan. It was a small crew, just three of us. And uh, we had to work at a potash plant. And potash is stuff, I'm not sure what it is, actually. They, they get it out of the ground. I think they use it for fertilizer. It's a white substance. It looks like gypsum. And uh, they get it out of the ground, and they use it in chemicals, and they use it for fertilizer and whatever else. And the reason why we had to photograph at this particular potash plant was because the documentary was about how urban areas develop, you know, either around an agricultural activity or around a mining activity or around the oil industry or whatever. So we wanted to do a story about a town developing around this potash plant. And um, we were staying at a little motel in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the cornfields, and Saskatchewan is as flat as a tabletop. So, you know, you can see right up to the horizon. It's completely flat, no mountains or whatever. And uh, we lived about, we were staying at about 30, 40 miles away from this potash plant. And early in the morning, we set out to, to go there. And you could see the plant on the horizon because there was this cloud of white dust going up into the into the atmosphere and then and, you know gathering up above in the atmosphere just sitting there like a big white cloud so we were traveling along you know not thinking too much about this and when we got to the plant the guy at the main gate says you you better get down to the parking lot as soon as you can because there's something up there in that cloud like what said the director you know i wasn't directing the show the uh, there was another guy who was directing the show he said like like what and the guy said we don't know what it is but it's there's something sitting up there in that cloud and uh maybe if you get down to the parking lot you know you you can see it so anyway we we drove into the plant parked outside the main buildings the director went in to meet the manager of the plant to uh, to plan the day's shooting i stayed in the parking lot i set up the camera and I set up the longest lens that we had in our kit. Must have been about a 300 millimeter lens, I think it was. Uh, we were shooting 16 millimeter film, and I put on this long lens and trained it on this on this cloud. And a couple of the guys who worked at the plant came sauntering over to the car, you know, smoking cigarettes and whatever else, and you know, just shooting the breeze with me. And uh, they were saying, "Yeah, there's something up there. We have no idea what it is, but it's there. It's been there ever since we arrived this morning." And I said, what does it look like? They said, well, we don't know, you know, but every now and again when the wind comes up, you can see something in there. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I trained the camera, the lens on that cloud, and we just sat around waiting. And then a little breeze came up. And as the breeze came up, it cleared this cloud a little bit. And my goodness, there was this metallic object just kicking back the sunlight 
It was definitely a metal sheen, like a fuselage of some sort. Uh, you couldn't see the entire structure of whatever this object was. And until a couple of minutes later, when the, the, the wind came up a little stronger and cleared the area completely, and there was this disc just sitting up there, I would say half a mile high. And, you know, people have often asked me, well, how big was it? Well, th- th- those were the days before the 747, that it was the size of a 747 aircraft. And underneath the disc was a sort of triangular shape connected to the disc, like with a tripod. Just sitting there absolutely still, not making a sound, no sign of windows, no sign of propulsion systems, nothing. Um, I did notice that my watch had stopped. And the other guys on the, in, 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 in the parking lot, they also said, well, look, our watches have, all our watches have stopped. Um, anyway, so, as soon as it revealed itself, I ran some film on, on the, of this thing. And uh, I ran about, I don't know, probably about 150 feet of film, which translates into a good few minutes of, 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 of screen time. And um, later on, the director arrived, and the, eventually the cloud covered up this object again. We had to get on with our, our day's filming, which we did. And, you know, that was that. So when we got back to the motel that night, I broke off this piece of film, from the rest of the film, I, I canned it up separately to go to the lab for processing, and I just labeled it Hold for Arrival. I didn't write any description of what it was, because we didn't know what it was. And weeks later, we all get back to Montreal to view the dailies of what we'd shot, and, you know, we sat through hours and hours and hours of footage of, you know, little towns and mines and farms and whatever else. And at the end of the, uh, of, of the screen, the projectionist yells back from the, from the back of the theater says, you want to see that rule that says hold for our arrival? So he said, yeah, yeah, sure, please put it on. And there it was, exactly as I had seen it, this disc-shaped object just sitting up there in the sky, absolutely stationary, huge, um, metallic sheen, no sign of windows, as I said, just sitting there. And the head of the camera department, uh, a guy by the name of Dennis Gilson, he said, what on earth is that thing? And I said, I have no idea. But all I can tell you this is that, you know, my, my, my watch was erratic. It's, 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 it stopped working when I saw, so the camera worked, but the, my watch stopped working. Um, and he said, you know, we, we, we ought to send that down to the U.S. because they have a thing down there called Project Blue Book based at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, I think. And we should send it to those guys. Maybe they can identify what it is, which is exactly what what they did to the camera department they sent it down and you know some weeks went by we worked i worked on another film uh and uh, one day i was in the camera department and i went up to the um the lady who ran the uh the 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 camera department her name was frankie johnson i said frankie you know did we ever hear back from those guys in the states about that that thing that we uh, shot in saskatchewan she said oh no no i i um i never heard back let me give him a call so the next morning she calls me into her office she said i gave him a call and they denied ever receiving the film. Now, these people, they had signed for it. We had documented evidence. Uh, it was some courier service. It was way before the days of, of FedEx and UPS. I don't know. I forget what system it was that we used those days. But they, a courier service had, had sent it to Project Blue Book, and they denied receiving it. But we know that they got it. So, you know, everyone said, ah, so we've been hearing about this conspiracy that they don't want us to know 
about the stuff that, that, that's out there because Roswell had happened. UFOs had been seen all over the West Coast and certainly in other parts of the world. Uh, and here we are being told that they never received the film. It's, it, it smacked of something very, very strange. There was something very fishy about all of that. And we never found out what it was or why they denied receiving the film. But clearly, they didn't want to publicize the fact that they had received this film from us because as clear as a bell, this was some kind of weird alien object. Years later, by the way, I'm just going to switch uh, ahead here. Many, many years later, this is, this is in about 1995 or 96, I did a show for the History Channel. Um, and it, I think it was called uh, Ancient Encounters. And uh, we, we, we looked at historical evidence of, of, of UFOs down through the centuries, going right back to the ancient Egyptians. There are, there are, there's artwork on Egyptian tomb walls of objects in the sky. And um, one of the people that I interviewed for this particular show um, was, uh, uh, was Gordon Cooper, who was one of the original Mercury astronauts. And, you know, uh, um, I met him at his office. He had, had an office here in L.A. at Van Nuys Airport. And I went there and I said, um, uh, Colonel, I hope you don't mind me asking you to do this, but I, I want to ask you, I want to interview you about the fact that there is a rumor that you had personally seen a UFO. Would you say so on camera? And he said, are you kidding? Are you bet your life I'll tell you what I saw on camera. You know, we were all sworn to secrecy. We were told not to talk about the stuff, but when I was a pilot based in Germany before I was chosen as a Mercury astronaut, we were scrambled one day in, in F-86 Sabres, Sabre jets, and we were told to chase this craft, and we chased this disc. This disc behaved in a way that no physical object, no human-made object could behave the way this object did. The way it just shot across the sky at thousands of miles an hour and came to a, a dead halt. And just sat there. And as we approached it, it would just always be ahead of us. He said, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. We were sworn to secrecy, but I cannot hold back anymore about telling you what I'd seen. This, These things, whatever they are, are not of this earth. They're from someplace else. And I know that they exist. And, you know, years later, um, not too long after that, I was on a show called um, The History of Flight. And, um, and, 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 um, Neil Armstrong was the host of the series. And we were filming at Mojave Airport here in the, in, in California. And it was the lunch hour. And during the lunch hour, I went to him and I said, uh, Colonel, do you mind if I have lunch with you? No, sure. He said, absolutely. Now, there's always been rumors that the Apollo 11 astronauts had some kind of an experience or had seen things. It was never made very clear what. On their mission to the moon in back in 1969, and uh, he and I went to sit in the in the camera truck because um, it was as hot as Hades that day. And uh, halfway through our meal, I said, "Can I ask you a personal question?" And he looked at me and he said, "Sure, go ahead." And I said, "Those rumors about you and and Buzz Aldrin having s seen something on the moon—is there any truth to that?" And he just put his plate down, and he looked at me and he said. You never asked me that question, and I'm not going to answer it. And I think that that says more than anything else could possibly say. Obviously, these guys were sworn to secrecy and were not telling us what they had really seen or what was going on 
of that there is no doubt. Right. Well, uh, I'll like before we move to another listener question. I hope you kept a copy of that uh, film from Saskatchewan before you sent it to Blue Book. You see, that's the problem. Those days, you could shoot on two different kinds of film stock. One was negative. You had a negative image, and then you made a positive print from that. Or you had a kind of film called reversal, which is what we used to use when we used to shoot slides. So the original film that you used in the camera is what you used to make your slide mm. uh, for projection. And that was the kind of film that we were using. Um, so basically, because it was a positive image, we sent them the original. Oh. We didn't keep a copy. And so there's no proof of what we had. You know, there's no way that we can prove um, that we even had the damn stuff. Well, that's true. So, very, very frustrating. Um, but what does it tell us? You tell me. <laughs> well, I can tell you quite a bit, actually. Well, anyway, here's um, we have uh, Phil from Connecticut, who was uh, one of our show reporters in the Litchfield Triangle, as we call it. And, uh, ben, if you would. So, Phil writes to us, uh, Often we discuss the paranormal in particular when dealing with a shamanistic experience. Effects come uh, before causes. What does this say about the arrow of time? Interesting question. Um, it's a very, very good question, and I think it's way beyond my, my competence of being able to answer that, but this I do know. And... Um, even the scientists today are telling us that there is no such thing as time. If you look, quantum mechanics tells us that the future and the past and the present are all contemporaneous. They're all the same. There's mm -hmm. no difference. And we know that time changes. Uh, Einstein predicted that years ago, back in the, in the, in the, in the 20s or 30s when he came up with his E equals, equals MC squared, um, um, solution, you know, that <clears throat> the faster you go, time changes. So time is not a constant. And uh, there is no such thing as time. I think that uh, it all exists at the same time. How is it possible that we can tap into the past and some people can tap into the future, like some of these Sangomas that I have met purely by looking at bones? It's all happening at the same time. It's all contemporaneous. It's all existing on the same. It depends on where we are on the circle that our perception changes. But other than that, it's all going on at the same time. Uh, and I think that there's no doubt about that. Do we understand it? Well, I think we have to ask a quantum physicist about that. I cannot answer the, uh, answer that question. But, uh, time is not absolute. That's for sure. Well, uh, you have described precisely our, our view based on our understanding of quantum physics, uh, and that is the, the whole basis of our theories and methods which have brought some pretty amazing results and we have had uh, distinguished quantum physicists on this show such as uh, Dr. Fred Allen Wolf, Dr. Amit Goswami who essentially have, have said the same thing so yes. well, we're very well put so Ben has a question I do, um, you know we, this is in, in everything everything we've talked about I, I have one question kind of popped up during the break which was, um, you know, out of all the things, the Sangoma who kind of laid out everything that was going to happen in your life, is there anything that was predicted that hasn't happened yet or or hasn't happened quite how you expected? The last thing that has happened, uh, which made no sense to me at the time, after she'd made all these other predictions, and I'd like to talk about one of them, by the way, um, before we move away from her, mm -hmm. and that is this this guy who knew the most evil man who ever lived. I'd like to explain what she meant by that, but I'll get back to that. 
But she also said to me that one day that the time will come when I will be stricken by a very, very serious illness and the illness will almost kill me. And, you know, I, I ignored that, of course. I mean, you know, I, I was as healthy as can be, right? Aren't we all? And, and, and we're all absolutely fine until something <laughs> yeah. hits us. Yeah. You know, th- then you suddenly realize, oh my God, we're all fallible. You know, we're all, we're all human. Yeah. And it was only, um, a few years ago, she, well, th- th- when she, she predicted, she said, this illness will almost take your life. And, you know, one evening I was sitting here at home, uh, I'd come back from the office. And, uh, my wife and I we were sitting, we were watching, I think it was Jeopardy that we were watching actually. And, um, and my wife, it was a hot evening and I was wearing shorts and my, my wife looked down and she said, why are your ankles so swollen? And I said, oh my God, are you kidding? Yeah, they are. Uh, I looked down, I said, I wonder what that's all about. So anyway, I went to see my, my doctor. Uh, I, that was scary. I, I hadn't even noticed. I mean, who looks down at your feet? Um, and, uh, and so I went to my doctor and he said, you know, this is not a good sign. There are two things going on here. You've either got a heart problem or you have something wrong with your kidneys. And I think I'm going to send you to the guy upstairs. He's a nephrologist, a very good one. Let's see what he comes up with. And we, I went up there. And within a week, I had had a biopsy done and I was discovered that I had an autoimmune disorder. In other words, they called it idiopathic, which meant they have no idea what caused it. Medical, the medical uh, fraternity have interesting terms for things. If they don't know what it's about or what causes it, it's, it's called idiopathic. Mm. And, and so they said, you have an idiopathic autoimmune disorder. That is basically your, your, your immune system is trying to destroy your kidneys. We don't know why. You know, and, my, my, and this guy, the nephrologist, said to me, were you even stung by a, a you know a scorpion or a bug or a whatever you know? And I said, are you kidding me? I lived in Africa for years and years and years. I swam in filthy waters. I ate dirty food. You know, I lived in the most appalling places at times, making movies. Yes, all those things happened to me. I got bitten and stung throughout my life. Yes, of course, all those things happened. Why do you ask? And he said, well, maybe something latent has been in your system all these years and has only now been triggered by by something that is turning against you and i wasn't uh i couldn't identify what it could have been but yeah all the things that he asked me had happened but it was a complete mystery as to why my immune system was turning against my body and destroying both my kidneys at the same time at an equal rate and that woman had foreseen that and my life was in peril so uh, that's one of the reasons that took me back to Africa. And in fact, the book that I wrote, Forever in My Veins, starts with, with this story. That when I was diagnosed with this illness, I, 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 I was scared out of my wits when I, I learned that I had this autoimmune disorder. And then I suddenly realized, what am I so surprised about? This was predicted, you oh, know, 50, 50 years ago. This woman had told me this was going to happen to me. So why should I be surprised about it? Everything else that she told me came true. Why shouldn't this? And um, she had foreseen this. And so a friend of mine who is a general surgeon uh, who lives up the road in a place called Santa Barbara here on the West Coast, um, he has been studying the shamans of Africa for years. And he often goes back, in fact, he goes back every year to study their, their, the, the plants that they choose and use for their medications as you know, part of... Uh, of his learning process. He wanted to learn the paradigm of the African system. And he also, by the way, was born in South Africa, as was I. He's the same age as me, too. 
And uh, when I was diagnosed with this illness, and this is a surgeon, by the way, and he said to me, you know what, I'm going back to South Africa in October. Why don't you come with me and let's see if the Sangomas don't have an answer for you. And I said, Dave, are you kidding me? You, as a general surgeon, you've been to, you, you taught at Stanford University. You want me to go back and be diagnosed by a witch doctor? And he said, yes, I do. Because those guys actually know more than you think they know. And they know a lot more than I thought I knew. And I think we should go back. You should come with me and let's see if they have any answers for you. And so I started this whole new learning curve. I went back to Africa many times to consult with the Sangomas who all diagnosed the fact that I had a kidney illness only by looking at their bones. Wow. Now, before we burn up the hour here with this fascinating conversation, tell us about uh, the books you've written, your website, where people can find out more. Yeah, my website is my name, Lionel Friedberg, one word, L-I-O-N-E-L-F-R-I-E-D-B-E-R-G, LionelFriedberg.com. That's my website. And the book is available right now. It's called Forever in My Veins, and it's available from Barnes & Noble uh, or Amazon.com or, or your local bookstore, if your local bookstore is open under these uh, pandemic conditions. But it's available uh, nationwide. In fact, it's available world worldwide. And uh, it's on sale right now. It, it, the publication date was the beginning of January um, this year. And um, I think folks would find it really interesting because it looks at a lot of stuff. You know, I, I don't want to sound boastful. And I don't want to sound arrogant. This is the last thing I want to do. Believe me, I don't want to do that. But I've had an extraordinary life, and I've done some amazing things, and I've worked, some, uh, worked on a lot of, of really amazing movies in my time as a documentary filmmaker, uh, including a, a film that was called Beyond Death, which looked at the demise, what happens to consciousness after the demise of the physical body. You know, I did a show on the history of the Voyager spacecraft, that went all the way to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. I've done some extraordinary things. I've worked on ethnographic movies, uh, political films. You know, I've worked on films for National Geographic and whatever. Also, I've, I've been blessed with an amazingly rich and exciting life. And I just wanted to share this, which is one of the reasons why I wrote this book. And, 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 and the through line is that there is a level to the world we live in that we don't really understand. There's more going on than we can ever begin to know. I believe that we really are living in an extraordinary place that science has not yet fully labeled or understood or put on the Petri dish or put under a microscope. There's more going on than we know. And the, the deeper I get involved in all of these topics and all of these subjects, the more amazed I am at the extraordinary richness and variety of the of the cosmos in which we live, whether it's to do with um, uh, you know extraterrestrials or the survival of consciousness, uh, life after death, or whether it's to do with you know what science does and how science works and how 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 humanity developed and how evolution uh, came about, it's all been an amazing journey of discovery, and I just wanted to share that. So that's what the book is really all about. But and, and the through line is what this ancient, ancient old woman saw in a mud hut in Africa 60 years ago. How wonderfully put that is. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's our attitude exactly. 
because we don't know anything. My, my last contact with uh, the shaman was in Australia in 1979, <laughs> but right. uh, quite uh, quite quite the conversation that was as well. What 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 are you working on now, Lionel? Well, I've got a, another book coming out in July. Uh, it's the history of South African Airways, which probably will never fly again. Uh, the pandemic has killed it, as it has many, many other airlines. But it's it's an extraordinary story. I'm 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 an aviation nut. I, I really I think you know space and aviation are in my blood just as much as all this other stuff. So I wrote a history of of uh, of, uh, of 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 aviation in Africa going right back to the the beginning of the last century and uh, and the development of that airline so it's called the flying springbok and that'll be available in July i'm pretty excited about that as are the publishers because it's an amazing story uh you know i mean you you're talking about a continent no airfields no radio aids no communication aids n- n- no infrastructure whatsoever and you develop an airline and uh it was an amazing tale to be able to do that and it it was one of the great airlines of the world and it lasted for a long long time until it was eventually you know grounded by um by some degree of incompetence after um uh south africa got its independence and became a democratic society things went a little wrong but the most important thing that actually killed the airline was um, the the pandemic, as it has so many other airlines. It's a very very sad story, but it's an exciting tale. Uh, anybody into aviation, or you know, any 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 geek into techie stuff will love the book. Excellent. Okay, well, we are just about uh, out of time, and uh, again, everyone, Lionel Friedberg dot com check it out a fascinating conversation we're definitely going to have you back soon I feel like we barely scratched the surface barely scratched the surface <laughs> as they as the cliche goes lionel thank you so much it's been a great pleasure guys i've been enjoying it so much and i'd love to talk more to you at some point when the opportunity arises thanks so much for having me on oh we'll, oh, we'll definitely have you back thank yes. you so much always welcome okay ben take us away with our announcements if you would please I shall indeed. Uh, first off, plans are still on for an in-person uh, New England Parafest uh, that's on April 10th and 11th in Kittery, Maine. We plan to be there both days, uh, but we will do a live show uh, from there, so live broadcast of this show specifically, on Sunday at noon. Uh, then we're scheduled to speak that afternoon at 3.15. Other speakers will include Shane, Andy Kitt, uh by Shane, we mean Shane Searway, of course. Uh, Andy Kitt, Dennis Stone, Nomar Slovic, the Connecticut Paranormal Research Team, Kristen Evans, Dave McCullough, Lynn Nickerson, and Tom D'Agostino. You can check that out on Facebook, New England Parafest 2021. And I certainly want to do a shout-out today to my wife, Ben's mom, on her birthday. And we're going to head over to the old homestead after the show and whoop it up somewhere there. I uh, will not mention the age. Anyway, uh, we're working hard on our new book, Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies. Also contributing, and we'll, we'll have, uh, see if we can get uh, prevail upon Lionel to let us use his uh, Saskatchewan story. Also contributing will be our I colleagues uh, Shane Searway, Alexander Petikoff, and Valerie Lofaso, someone you'll be hearing more about. Uh, the book will also contain the best of our interviews over the years with the greatest researchers in the UFO field, as well as some of our own experiences. I'll look for the book release toward the end of this year. 
You can check out our concurrent books along with those of our other co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, we can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our 900-plus free recorded shows from our 12-and-a-half, or, well, 12-year-plus years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, we have uh, reloaded uh, recorded shows into the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com back to 2009 after all the technical difficulties we had over the past two years. Uh, one more year and a lot of special shows to go. Uh, past shows back to late 2009 are also available uh, on major podcast platforms, including YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, the Paranormal Radio app and TalkStream Live, and more. And we do plan to, uh, we, we are scheduling our what is officially our 900th show will be in June. Jeez. It makes me feel tired just to think about yeah, it. Right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, in any case, uh, we're planning uh, one or two very special things for that. And if you have any ideas, uh, we may have a hope working on a very, very special guest, probably the most distinguished guest we've ever had. And I don't want to give away any secrets here, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. It's like a paranormal variety show. Indeed. Uh, there are links to several charities we have adopted on the show, including uh, usacares.org, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. We always emphasize that we know the people who run these charities. We check them out very seriously. Uh, a lot of them are friends of ours, and uh, the money goes where it's supposed to go. Also, the Milk Fund here in Northern Rhode Island. So, Ben, what's uh, on tap for next week? Well, uh, more more accurately, what is not on tap for next oh, week? Oh, that's true. Uh, so, so next week, February 28th, uh, there will be no show uh, because of a rare 12 noon game start uh, for the Boston Bruins here in the New England area for all you hockey fans out there. Uh, however, we will be back live on March 7th with an in-depth look at the paranormal in the media with Doug Hycheck, producer of Monster Quest, and Joel Sturgis of America's Most Haunted. So some, some very... Uh, well, a couple guys, actually. I don't think we've ever had the, on the show before. No, we haven't. Uh, and it'll be very unusual because we tend to be very critical of reality TV. Can't imagine why. And uh, they're, they are two, I think, very, very good people in that field. And they're going to be uh, uh, with us uh, in two weeks. And we'll see what they have to say about this. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we'll leave you today with one of my favorite quotes from that lovable old pundit, Albert Einstein. If you can't explain it to a six-year-old... You don't understand it yourself. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.